you have access to a Bible this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, We are in Mark chapter 15 as we journey through Mark. We're very much nearing the end of this Gospel uh, together. I think uh, last week's sermon was number 59 uh, through the Gospel of Mark. That's the longest I've ever preached on one book. Um, But it's also the first time I preached through a Gospel entirely. So this has been fun for me. I hope it's been meaningful for you. Um, as well. We're in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 25. Jesus has been condemned to death by the Jewish authorities, and then that has been confirmed by the Roman authorities. He's been flogged, and now we enter into the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. We read some of the verses we're going to read this morning, next, uh, last week, but we're also going to move into a section that we did not as we think about um, what Jesus has done for us and some of what we can learn from the road that Jesus walked ahead of us. If you're able to do this, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel this morning. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 25, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Him. The inscription of the charge against Him read, The King of the Jews. And with Him they crucified two bandits, one on His right and one on His left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they, they said, Listen, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's son. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Title of the sermon this morning is When God Whispers. When God Whispers. And it's a space that we've uh, explored a little bit together a few sermons back. On January 10th, I preached a sermon called The Preparation of Jesus. And in the context of that sermon, we were talking about what it means to know God's will in the worst of circumstances. And in that context, we were talking about the Garden of Gethsemane and the distress that Jesus was under. And we were asking, how did He know what to do when He was in that kind of distress, filled with that kind of anxiety? And in that conversation, we really focused on the need to understand the Scriptures because Jesus goes back to the scriptures over and over again as his compass when the world uh, goes sidewards. And in some ways, today's sermon is sort of related to that sermon because we're going to ask a similar question, though the question we're going to ask is much broader. And the question is this, how do we know when God has spoken? How do we know God's voice? Some years ago, there was a a, a televangelist who was considered, I think, one of the first televangelists, very, very popular, radio, television, and all that. His name was Oral Roberts. He just died a few years ago in 2009 at the age of 91. 
Some of you remember that in 1987, he claimed that he had received a word from God and God had told him that if he didn't raise $8 million for his City of Faith Medical and Research Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma, God would take him away to heaven. You remember that, some of you who, who were alive then. <laughs> he didn't raise that money. The center closed two years later and he died in 2009. In 2007, Christianity Today uh, had an article entitled, My Conversation with God. And it was written by an unnamed, it was an anonymous Christian university professor who claimed to have heard the voice of God asking him to give all the royalties from a new book he had written to a needy student. And he wrote an article saying that this had been the first time that God had spoken to him literally and physically in his life. In the 2015 Super Bowl, the lead singer uh, for that was Katy Perry, some of you will remember. And in an interview after that, she said she was praying before heading out to perform. And she said, God said to her, you got this and I got you. How do we know that any of those individuals or you and I heard the voice of God? How do we know when it is God who speaks? This is an important question for Mark. If you turn back to the very first chapter of Mark, he began with a claim in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark says this, The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How do we know that that's true? Well, Mark has insisted in this gospel that we know Jesus is the Son of God because God said Jesus was the Son of God. But how do we know that that was God's voice saying that? We're going to deal with the three instances in which Jesus hears those words. He hears them in His baptism. He hears them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And He hears them on the cross. How do we know when God speaks? Now, to be transparent, there were at times in my sermon prep this week, as I was wrestling with this passage, that I thought maybe I was going in, a, in too novel a direction with Mark, because obviously this is a significant passage. And it's obviously we normally preach on what Jesus is doing on the cross and what He's doing for us. But we're heading into Passion Week. We're going to talk about that over and over and over again. If you come to the Passover Seder, if you come to the Ten and Brass service, if you're here on Easter Sunday. So, today I want to go in a slightly different direction, but I am I am convinced that the way Mark has told the story of Jesus for us, at least in part, intends to put us into this space. Many people claim to be from God. Many people claim to speak for God. But how do we know that Jesus was being truthful? And, and you might say, well, the answer is the empty tomb. And that's true in all the other Gospels, except Mark, who barely mentions it. Wrapped up in answering that question. How do we know that Jesus was truly the Son of God? That God really said those words about Him? Wrapped up in answering that question, I believe Mark has helped us to address not only that question, but the broader question of how we ever know that we've heard the voice of God. And it's no insignificant or impractical topic for us to discuss. A few weeks ago, I defined blasphemy for us. And real blasphemy, the core definition of blasphemy in the Scriptures, is claiming that God has said or done things that God has never said or done. 
Real blasphemy is claiming that God has said or done things that God has never said or done. If God spoke to Oral Roberts and really said that, then that's fine. If it wasn't God, then he blasphemed. If this Christian university professor really heard the voice of God telling him to give all the royalties away, that's fine. But if he didn't, in writing that article, he blasphemed. If Katy Perry really heard God say to her before she went out to perform at the Super Bowl, you got this and I got you. If that really was the voice of God, then we're fine. But if it wasn't, then she just blasphemed. How do we know? And you and I have done it too. We have spoken on God's behalf. I do it every week. <laughs> How do we know? If there's a blasphemer here, I have the most opportunity to do it. Right? And Mark has recounted for us three pivotal stories and all the themes come together in the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. And they narratively parallel each other. The account of Jesus' baptism, the account of His transfiguration in this moment of His death for us in His crucifixion. And that repetition of the same story, you remember at His baptism, here are the verses in case you want them. You may need to like, tear pieces off your bulletin. Just make sure nothing important on what you rip off, right? Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. You're going to want to have a, a little uh, piece of paper in there. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. And then in chapter 15, verses 25 to 39 that we read together. Those are the verses you're going to want to have in there. And what's important is that God did not say in the Gospel according to Mark that Jesus was the Son of God once. He said it three times. And that is important for us. And I know you're going to say, well, don't you mean two times because the other was a soldier. We'll get to that. But three times we hear those words. And that's important because throughout the Scriptures, repetition is critical to understanding whether or not God has spoken. Critical to understanding it. Just one illustration to begin with is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph is, is a, a, a son of Jacob, and he's in prison, and he gets delivered out of prison in Egypt because Pharaoh has heard that he can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh has had a dream. Twice he's had it, different dream, but the same basic themes. And no one can interpret it. And he hears that Joseph can interpret dreams, so he invites Joseph to come to the palace or wherever he is and hear the dreams. And Joseph gives his interpretation. And at the end of that interpretation, Joseph says this. This is in Genesis chapter 41, verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. Now, I, I point that out just to say that this is consistent throughout the First Testament. If you only hear it once, might be God, might not be God, you'll never know. If you hear it twice, much more confident. If you hear it three times, you can be almost certain. This is one of the principles of the First Testament, and Mark is drawing on it. Repetition is important throughout the Scriptures, particularly when discerning God's voice and will. And due to their repeated elements, these three incidences in the life of Jesus, in which we hear the words, He is the Son of God, seem intended by Mark to indicate the confidence that we should have in Jesus' appointment for us. And I think that this will help us into the conversation about how we know God speaks at all, and whether or not you know for certain He said words to you and to me. And so we're going to approach this in three stages. 
We're going to look at the repetition of similar circumstances in the life of Jesus. We're going to look at the situation of similar witnesses in the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at the core uh, conviction of the similar words in the life of Jesus. So let's look first at the similar circumstances between these scenes. And I know this is a complicated thing for us to grab. Usually we're in one passage and today we're in three. And you're going to really need to flex your fingers because we'll be flipping around a little bit too. This is probably more scripture than we normally deal with on a Sunday morning. But if you're looking at Mark chapter 1 verses 9 to 11, Mark chapter 9 verses 2 to 8, and Mark chapter 15 verses 25 to 39, you're going to see some themes in common. In all three of those stories, Jesus' circumstances are similar. In the baptism, he's immersed in water. In the transfiguration, he's enveloped or immersed in a cloud, water vapor. And on the cross, he is immersed in darkness and he's dying. Now, this is significant for us because we've talked about this before. Water in the scriptures is consistently used as a metaphor for chaos and destruction and death. When God first created the earth, it was all water. And he has to separate the waters to create a habitable space for life. And the demons go into the waters. All that stuff through the Gospel of Mark. We've been talking about that. Well, water is here present in all of these scenes. In the presence of actual water in the baptism. In the presence of the cloud in the transfiguration. And in the presence of the darkness and death in the crucifixion of Jesus. So he's immersed in all three of those circumstances. So there's similar circumstances in which God speaks this word. We also see tearing happening in all three of these circumstances. At his baptism, he saw the heavens ripped open, you remember. At the transfiguration, God somehow, either the veil is thinned or in that cloud there's a tearing because God speaks out of the heavens and into the earth. And then at Jesus' death when he dies, the temple that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence was said to dwell from the holy place was torn open. Just like the heavens were torn open at his baptism. So we have, when God speaks, he speaks in similar circumstances. That's one of the ways that Mark wants us to know we can have confidence in who Jesus is. It wasn't just a one-time thing. And those repeated circumstances are significant throughout the First Testament. There are almost too many examples to even number. I started just making a rough list, and I think once I got up to 30, I thought, that's too long for point number one, don't you think? So I'm just going to give you just like, like three or four. Okay, the, the dreams of Pharaoh were one, where they're repeated, and because they're repeated, we can be confident that this is coming from God. That's just one example. Some of you remember the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And he's asked to lead an army to conquer Israel's enemies, but he's not sure that he should or can do it, and he doesn't know if he trusts that this guy who says he's an angel really is an angel. And so Gideon puts out a fleece. You remember the story? He puts out some wool, and he says, if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry the next morning, then I'll know that this came from God. And so he puts out his fleece, and, and sure enough, it's wet in the morning, and the ground is dry. But Gideon says, boy, that was a bad test, because that would normally happen, right? The ground would dry quicker than the fleece would. So that's not a good test. So I'm going to do it again, and this time I want the ground wet and the fleece dry. That's more miraculous, right? And so he puts out the fleece a second time, and surely it happens again. And with those three confirmations for him, the two fleeces and the word of the angel, he's confident that God wants him to go. 
Just another example. Uh, Samson's parents, this is also in the book of Judges. Some of you may be getting the sense we're going to be going to Judges after this because i got Judges on the mind. Samson's parents, uh, when, before he comes, if you don't know who Samson is, he's the guy with the long hair, super strength. They cut off his hair, he loses his strength. If that just intrigues you and you go, I don't know that story, well, you don't want to read it because it's interesting. But anyway, before Samson is born in the book of Judges, an angel comes to his mother and tells her that she's going to give birth to a son and gives her instructions as to how she should raise him. She tells her husband, and her husband says, Well, well, we need him to come again. And you could, you could figure, maybe he's, he's kind of a, a, you know, a patriarchal kind of you know, male-dominated guy, and he doesn't think an angel should be coming to a woman. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But in any case, he wants confirmation that that's really from God. So he needs it to happen again. So they ask for that. And surely, an angel comes to her again. And this time, she brings the angel to her husband. He gives the same instructions. And now they know, because it's been repeated, that it's from God. And then the angel disappears up in the fire, which must have been cool. And Manoah thinks he's going to be killed. And his wife had to say, listen, buddy, why would he tell us about this if he's just going to kill us? It's an interesting story. <laughs> Ends up with Samson and all that. But the, and, and then I'll give you another one. Why not? Samuel. Samuel is a young boy being raised in the temple, raised by the high priest Eli. And he's laying in bed one night and he hears a voice and says, Samuel. And Samuel thinks it's Eli calling him. So he goes to Eli and he says, did you call me? And Eli says, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. And so he goes back to bed. Then he hears the voice a second time. And again he thinks it's Eli. So he runs over to Eli and says, did you call me? And Eli says, no. But Eli thinks, ooh, this might be something happening. Next time say, here I am. And so Samuel goes back to bed. And again, he hears the voice a third time. And this time he says, here I am. And it turns out to be God who speaks to him. But not just once, three times. You get the repetition? God doesn't speak just once. God's voice is not discerned in a moment, but over time in similar circumstances. That's our first point. Similar circumstances. The second thing we see in the life of Jesus is similar witnesses. So still looking at those passages, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 15. Three witnesses were present in all of these scenes in which the word of God was spoken to Jesus. Scripture was present in all of these scenes. The Holy Spirit was present in all of these scenes. And Elijah in one way or another, was present in all of these scenes. And Elijah is significant because of the closing verses of the last book of the First Testament in our Bibles, Malachi, which prophesies that before the Messiah comes and before the day of the Lord comes, the prophet Elijah would come to herald his coming. So it's very important. So let's look first at Scripture. Scripture is present in all of these scenes. The words spoken by God in the first two events, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, those are quotations from the Psalms. Exact quotations. As were the unwitting words of the Roman soldier. In addition to this, the presence of Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration represent the Law and the Prophets, testifying to Jesus. That again is Scripture. The words Jesus spoke from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was a quotation from Psalm 22. And the signs of the tearing and of Jesus' transfigured appearance and the earthquake and the darkness on the cross, those were all fulfillment of prophecies written in the First Testament. We've dealt with some of them from Zechariah, from Amos, from Isaiah. So the Scriptures are all over these things. 
right? Each time confirmed by Scripture. Second, the Spirit is present in all of these circumstances. He alights as a dove on Jesus. It says in Mark, He comes into Jesus at His baptism. He is, because God's work in the world in Mark is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, He's the one transfiguring Jesus on the mountain. Might be even symbolized in the cloud itself. It's hard to say. And when Jesus dies on the cross, now you don't see the Holy Spirit so overtly on the cross, right? But when Jesus dies, and this is repeated twice by Mark, which makes me think it's, it's important. The Greek actually, you read in the English, it says he breathed his last. But in the Greek, it's a very strange word. We get the word expired from it. To spirit out. He outspirited and died. Now at his baptism, the Holy Spirit, it said in Mark, came into him. At his crucifixion, the scripture says, the spirit goes out of him, and he dies. So in all of these, the spirit is there, never mind the portents of the tearing of the curtain, the earthquake, the darkness, which would all technically be the work of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Elijah is present in all three of the episodes. John the Baptist, Jesus says in chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, is the Elijah that was to come. So he is the Elijah in the baptism scene. Elijah is actually physically present in the transfiguration as he arrives with Moses to talk with Jesus. And then, interestingly enough, when Jesus is dying on the cross, the people think he's calling Elijah. And that's completely legitimate. Because the word, my God, is what Elijah's name means. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They don't understand he's quoting Psalm 22. They think he's saying, Elijah, Elijah, why have you forsaken me? And they think that he's calling Elijah to come and validate him as the Messiah. And so they give him that water to keep him alive a little longer to see if Elijah shows up. So Elijah is here. Now, why two or three witnesses? Why Scripture, Holy Spirit, and Elijah in all three of these scenes? It's very, very important for the thinking of the First Testament. Because according to the law of Moses, two or three witnesses are required in order to validate anything, including the claim that God has spoken. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offense that may be committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be sustained. And so we have these witnesses. In his baptism, it's John the Baptist, it's the Holy Spirit and God, and it's also uh, Jesus himself. So we have three witnesses there. In the transfiguration, we have the three apostles who are with him, plus we have Moses and Elijah, plus we have the Holy Spirit, plus we have, I mean, lots of testimony there. And then at his crucifixion, we have two criminals crucified with him. We have the Roman soldier at the feet of the cross, three witnesses, plus the Holy Spirit and Scripture and all of that. Again, God's voice is not discerned in a moment or by a single individual, but over time in similar circumstances and by multiple witnesses. Finally, similar words. This is Mark 1.11, Mark 9.7, and Mark 15.39. And notice how it begins personal and then becomes more corporate and then is spoken by someone who shouldn't even know what they're talking about. So first in Mark, God says to Jesus personally, You are my son. That's in chapter 1, verse 11. And then in chapter 9, verse 7, said in the midst of the disciples and Moses and Elijah, God speaks to them, This is my son. But it's the same words. 
And then finally on the cross, spoken by a Roman who just participated in crucifying Jesus, surely this was God's Son, like a spontaneous inspired utterance. All those words are the same. And this is the critical testimony for the gospel according to Mark because it's the word with which Mark began his gospel. He claims that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. How do we know that's true? Well, Mark insists that God said it. Not just once, but three times. Twice in his own voice and once in the voice of another. All three times in similar circumstances. All three times in the presence of multiple witnesses. And this is for Mark how we can have confidence that it is true. And if you think I'm making too much of that, and there are times I think I make too much of just about everything, but... This principle gets played out over and over again in the New Testament as a basic principle for discerning the Spirit of God. I'll just give you an example. It's a controversial one, but, you know, I'm nothing if not controversial. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'd invite you to turn there just so that you can see this language. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. Paul's in the midst of a, of a very heated conversation about speaking in tongues and prophecy and the order of worship and how all that should work. And he takes this principle of two or three witnesses and he applies it to that situation in a very creative way. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What should be done then, my friends, when you come together? Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue or in a language, a foreign language, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let them be silent in church and speak to themselves and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now I think what Paul is doing here is he's reminding us that if someone just jumps up in church and says, I have a word from God, and they just say it, how do you know that's from God? How do you know? Well, Paul insists it has to be confirmed by at least one, if not two others. So if someone speaks in a tongue, how do you know that's from God? Because two others will say the same thing in the same tongue. And then when they are interpreted, they will be the same. Because God never speaks only once. God speaks more than once. And prophets, and that's kind of the role that I kind of assume as pastor in the church, prophets are those who take the scriptures and try to apply them to the present situation. Let two or three speak. We don't often have that happen, right? But I try to live that out by making sure that I never preach anything from this word, that I don't have two or three other theologians or pastors who I respect and really believe in their integrity who agree. You've never heard me preach anything that I'm the only one who says it. If you want to hear that stuff, you go to a Sunday school class or a Bible study with me, right? Then you'll get my stuff. But from the pulpit, I always have to have some amount of collaboration. Because two or three should speak. And then let the others, that's you, weigh what is said. And this is how we test the spirits. It's the same way that Mark invites us to test the, the word of God that Jesus is God's son. It's the same way that Joseph knew it was God who gave Pharaoh the dreams. It's the same way that Samuel knew it was God calling his name. It's the same way that Samson's parents knew that it was a prophecy really from God. It's the same way Abraham knew that 
God was going to give him a son because the three angels told him. God's voice is not discerned in a moment, but over time, in similar circumstances, and by multiple witnesses, and by repetition of words in separate instances. So how do we discern God's voice? How do I know if God has spoken to me? Well, we need time. We need Scripture. We need community. And we need confirmation from those places. In other words, we need God to speak again, both to us and through others. Many voices speak to and through us. Many voices. And it always feels like God if it doesn't feel like me. I think that's usually the litmus test, right? Well, I heard this voice and it was not like my voice. It was not something I would say. And I want to say, well, how do you know that's God? I mean, it could be an angel, right? It could be a demonic force. It could be your mom speaking into your head. I, all kinds of things. It's, I can hear my mom. You know, my daughter is hacking and coughing. And my instinct is to, is to hold her at arm's length and kind of like keep her away from me and shake her out. You know, and I hear my mom's voice say to me, You hold that girl. You don't fear that sickness. You're her father. That's my mom. It's not me, but I hear it. <laughs> How do we know his voice? Are any of us so holy that every thought we have is God's? I, well, if you're here, get on the board. Because <laughs> it's not happening for your pastor. I bring words to the board and I let them wrestle with them. And we wrestle with scripture and we read books and we do all these things. Many voices speak to us and through us. And we have to be careful and patient when interpreting them. And I understand that sometimes we have to act on what we think is God's prompting in the moment without a lot of time to reflect. I understand that. My father tells a really powerful story for us as a family. We've heard it many times. In which he was a young man driving on a motorcycle down the highway and his brother, his twin brother was behind him and he was goofing around he wasn't looking where he was going he, tur he was turning looking at his brother and he will testify to this day that he heard a voice that said turn around and he turned around to see a truck immediately in front of him which he only had a split second to avoid was that the voice of God? Well, my dad, of course, gives, gives testimony to God protecting him. And he had to respond. He didn't have time to think, is that God's voice or should I just keep looking the other way? Like, he didn't have time. He had to assume that it was. But even in reflection, he needs to be careful, right? Because it could have been an angel who spoke to him. It could have been an instinct that he saw in his brother's eyes that had verbal form. Or it could be God. I'm not saying we want to take glory from God, but we also don't want to blaspheme him. So he needs to reflect over time. Is that consistent with who God is revealed to be in Scripture? Yes, it is. Did it protect him? Yes, it did. Does God love him? Yes, he does. Maybe all that comes together and he goes, oh, certainly that's God or at least someone being influenced by God, one way or the other. But we have to be so careful. Not because we want God not to get glory, but because we don't want God to get credit for not God things. And for every person who gives God glory for a word that they've heard, there's another person who says, God gave me a word and He wants me to tell you that you're a jerk! Maybe that only happens to pastors. <laughs> Does that not happen to you guys? No. <laughs> 
How do we know? Because I'm, I'm certainly consistent with God's character to say something like that to me, especially if I'm out of line. But how do I know? Well, I, I trust that there are going to be several of those people that week and, and that there will be similar circumstances and I'll bring it to the board and they'll say, well, you kind of were a jerk in that sermon. And then I'll go, okay, that's God's voice then. This person's right. My point is, God still speaks. He still speaks. But we won't miss it if we're paying attention because He will always speak more than once. He will speak to more than you. And the circumstances in which you hear that word will be similar enough that it will feel like deja vu. And as all those things come together, we begin to trust that we're hearing the voice of God. And even if we do blaspheme by being wrong after all that carefulness, I think God will understand. But we must not be presumptuous. There are too many, and I kind of resist this. In some ways, maybe churches are built this way. I don't know. Uh, but I resist the idea that I sit in my prayer closet and get words from God, and then I come here to persuade you to do what God told me we should do. And then I keep fighting with you over whether or not we are doing what God wants us to do, because I know what He told me to do, and I know that you all have to get on board, and if you're not hearing it, there's something wrong with you! I don't, I just don't, I don't exist in that world, though I know that there's kind of pressure to exist, and it would be simpler if I did. But me, I come and I say things to the board like, I think that this is where we should go. I've been praying about it, I've been studying the scriptures, I think this is where they should go. And, and I'll get some board members who will say, so is this God's will for us? And I'll say, I don't know, what do you think? And they'll be, it infuriates some people. <laughs> because you need to be decisive, you're the leader. <laughs> and I say, I'm not blaspheming God no matter how much you want me to do it. We're going to do this together. He's going to speak to more than just me. I hope that you believe that in your life too. That when you go to make a decision and you're a couple and you're a family, that it, the dad or the mom doesn't just say, well, God told me what we're going to do and bring it to the family and say, this is what we're going to do because this is what God told me to do. And the family goes, are you sure that was God? Yes, I am. Get on board or get out. If he says it to you, he'll say it to your spouse. If he says it to you, he'll say it to your kids. You don't believe that? Well, then what do you believe in? Do you think God's here? Do you think he's not capable of communicating? Do you think it's just a matter of discerning these little words that creep out of my mind? Of course not. God is real. He speaks to us in the real world. This will be confirmed. But we have to be patient. We have to seek him. We have to give it time. We have to study Scripture. Jesus knew God's voice because God spoke Scripture words to him. And he knew what to do because what was happening to him was in the Scriptures. And when the wheels fell off, he had that guide that he knew would be faithful. And then there were others who heard about Jesus, the things he heard. Remember how that happened? It might have happened this way in your life too. Jesus at his baptism, it was very personal for Mark. He doesn't say anybody else heard it. We find out later in the Gospel of John that John the Baptist overheard it as well. But in Mark, there's no sense of Jesus being fully aware of that. The words are spoken directly to him. You are my son. That might happen to you too, where you feel that God speaks directly to you. You, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. But Jesus, then that has to be repeated. And the next time it's not just said to Jesus, it's said to Jesus in front of other people. The disciples, Moses and Elijah, this is my son. 
confirmed. And then finally on the cross, it's spoken by somebody who we should have not even been listening to. What does a Roman soldier have to do with God? But he testifies to the same thing. How unlikely is that? Some of you have had that same experience, haven't you? You can testify to it, where God says something to you, and then something is said in a Bible study or a sermon or in a community group or something, and it kind of confirms what God said to you. And then some Yahoo on the street says something, you're like, what? That was, what? Wow! This is my point, is that this isn't just an idol, just so happened that in the life of Jesus. I think for Mark, this is the way we discern the voice of God. And when Jesus needed it most... On the cross, it was hidden. The word of God wasn't spoken out of the heavens. It was spoken by a Roman soldier. The presence of the Spirit wasn't coming on him as a dove. It was leaving him. The witnesses that he needed were not there. They had abandoned him. Elijah was only there in word. The Spirit in exiting. The Scriptures were present, but he spoke a desperate one and not a hopeful one. When we need that word most, we have to remember what he said in the past, and we'll find it in our darkness. We'll find those words spoken in unlikely places. And he'll remind us of the promises he's made in the past, in the moment in which we need them the most, but it will also be the most hidden. It'll be spoken out of the mouth of idiots and criminals, out of the darkness. But he will confirm his word. And when that happens, I hope you'll have the courage to say, God spoke to me. And if somebody says, how do you know? Well, I heard it myself. Others testified to the same thing. And then I heard this word come out of somebody that I had no connection with, and it was the same thing. I, I believe God is speaking to me. But if you're the only one who hears it, I hope you'll remain suspicious. I have, you have my promise as pastor that I will never preach from this pulpit something only I've heard. <laughs> doesn't mean the people I'm listening to are right, but at least there are others. Would you stand? <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you are a God who still speaks. We believe that you have called to each of us we believe that you've called several times for us to give over the things that we need to give over. We believe that that call in which we responded and we were saved was a call that had echoed through the past before. We believe that if you speak to us today, you'll confirm it through others, through our circumstances. Heavenly Father, we need to hear your voice. Would you help us to remember well enough to identify it? Heavenly Father, for those of us who sit in the darkness today, wondering where you are, like C.S. Lewis did in the quotation from last week, would you help us to hear your voice in this space? Would you help us to be attentive to our environment, that we might hear a word that echoes with words we've heard before, and we'll recognize that even in our darkest moments, when you seem the most distant, that you are there all over the place. Help us, Heavenly Father. And for those of us who have spoken presumptuously, maybe have too quickly spoken in your name before we had time to consider whether or not it was really you that we heard, would you forgive us? Would you help us, Heavenly Father, to be more patient in the future, to be more discerning? 
And Heavenly Father, we pray against the damage done by your people when we claim to speak in your name words you have not said and we bring disdain from the world on the church. Heavenly Father, would you forgive us? Would you protect us? Would you create grace in the world to hear from us again when we've overstepped our authority? Would you help us, Heavenly Father, to speak only your word and to be careful as we discern what the word of truth is? And we'll give you thanks and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.